right, we're going to go to Psalm 51 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 51. If you have a New Testament and don't have the Old Testament, uh, there are Bibles available, whole Bibles available in the resource room. They are free. Everything in the resource room is free. Feel free to grab one of those and take it with you and make it your own. We would love nothing better than to put a Bible in your hands. So feel free to take one of those. Psalm 51. Now, we have been over the last four weeks, this is the fifth week, talking about how failure is not an option, even though many of us sure wish that it were. Uh, if it could be an optional thing that, that I, I could opt out of failing, that would be awesome. That would be wonderful. If I could avoid all the mistakes in life and, and never do anything wrong, wouldn't that be great? And wouldn't we vote for that? But we don't have that choice. Uh, we are frail. We are human. We, we break and we fall and we stumble and we trip up. And I'm thankful that God does not ask us to do something that he knows we cannot do that God asks us instead to take our mess and give it to Him and follow Him and trust in His power and His love and His strength. And so as we've walked through this, we've looked at the idea of confession. Um, We've looked at the idea of being stuck. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the story of Peter uh, and and his kind of difficulty in letting go of his failure. Uh, Last week, we looked at Moses and his frustration. So some pretty big names in the Bible, Peter and Moses. Today, we're going to look at the story of another really big name. And this is our last uh, time together in this topic uh, this morning. And next week, we're going to get back to our study in the book of John and and finish out the book of John. So today, we're going to look at a man named David. Maybe one of the most famous people, and certainly uh, as, as history comes to a close and the son of David rises to take his place in, uh, in response to the covenant God made with David, the, the name David rings out really, really big. And yet, just like Peter and just like Moses and just like Paul and just like all of the big names in Scripture, Abraham, David was far from perfect. David blew it. And so we're going to look at that today. So as we get there to, uh, to Psalm 51, uh, let's talk laundry. You want to talk laundry for a second? I know you don't want to, but let's just talk about it for a second. Um, I have uh, a black t-shirt that, that I like wearing. It's a nice black t-shirt. Um, but when I get it back from the laundry, it's kind, of, it's kind of like the lottery. Did I win the lottery or not? Uh, on some days, I get it back and it looks really nice. On some days, I get it back from the laundry and it is covered in lint depending on, you know, if it was a towel or a sweater or something in the wash with it, it it's just, it's like a, one of those horsehair sweaters, you know, just got, you can see everything because it's black and it takes a half hour of, you know, rolling it with the, uh, with the, with the lint roller to get it clean. Or you could put it back in the lottery, I mean the laundry and see if it comes back clean. I have another shirt. I have a brown shirt. I almost wore it this morning to make this point. I have a brown shirt. Um, and it was one of the, the, the nicest shirts that I had um, until one day it got in, in the laundry room, uh, someone who was using our, our laundry stuff, um, drip, it wasn't someone in my family, so just, you know, somebody who was using my laundry stuff, splashed some bleach on it, and, and it's just right back here under the collar, there's a bleach spot on this brown shirt. And no matter how many times you wash that shirt, it is not going to return to brown. You cannot wash the bleach spot out. Um, and so I have two different laundry situations going on. One that is, you know, remediable and, and, and can turn out okay, and one that is permanent. And, and when I thought about that, I thought about this, because it's what we're going to look at today. It is the crux of the challenge that we have in dealing with our failures and in our fallout. 
in one sense, we can understand and we can kind of foresee that there are indelible marks from what happens in our lives. Things that no matter what you do, they won't change. Although we wish we could change them. It cannot be. But in another sense, as we read the word of God, the Bible talks about salvation and redemption and that God is bigger than any failure or any mistake that he can heal and he can restore and he can make new what has been dragged through the mud, what has been broken, seemingly irreparably. And so, which one is true? Are our lives forever marked by failure? Or is our Redeemer greater than all of that? When it comes down to it for you as a believer, what you believe about that has a lot to do with the tone of your spiritual life. Your connection, your relationship with God comes down to whether you believe that your mistakes are permanent. Can it be true? that God will come through on his promise, that the words used by the writers of the scriptures have real meaning, that they're not just nice poetic ways of trying to help us feel better. Is when, when the Bible talks about spiritually being restored, being cleansed, is that just empty? Is that kind of weak? Is that kind of whatever, it doesn't really have real meaning to my life? Or is that true and powerful and regenerative for my life? Which is it? Is it possible for the pieces of my life to ever really go back together? Or is it true that once things are broken, that the lines of those fractures will always serve as a reminder of the pain and heartache? Now, that's a big, big discussion probably more than I can do in the next 25 minutes. And I recognize that. But what we're going to do is we're going to learn, try to learn from one psalm, from one man under the inspiration of the Spirit about how he approached God when it seemed like his life was shattered forever. And so this psalm, Psalm 51, is a psalm of David. And the, the background to this story is actually kind of alluded to right in the title. If you're looking at Psalm 51, there are some words before verse 1. It says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David. And then it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this Psalm is in response to David and his sin. So we looked at the life of David a couple of years ago. So let's just like review the story of David very quickly. Because I think when you hear some of these biblical names, we think about, yeah, they sinned. Of course they sinned, but they were pretty good people overall. Nobody could say about David, you know, when you read his whole life, well, he was a pretty good guy overall. If you talk about David, one of the things that you talk about is this incident in his life, his sin with Bathsheba. And that story, I think you can find it in 2 Samuel 11, I think it is, um, if you read through the story. And it just reads like, uh, you know, you're stunned that this is unfolding in front of you. David uh, has an affair with Bathsheba. She's married. He's married. He has an affair with her because he sees her and he wants her and because he's king and he can take her. And so he does. And, and many, many times, we don't know if that happened other times, but many times that's the end of the story. Except when David sinned with Bathsheba, a baby was on its way. And so she, she was pregnant and she told the king, I'm with child. Only problem is her husband's away at war. And so it will be very, very obvious that something happened that should not have happened. 
And so David does what many of us try to do with our sin. David tries to find a way to cover it up. And he brings Uriah home from the battlefront and tries to make him go home and sleep with his wife so that everyone will think that the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah won't do it. And David tries several times to send Uriah home. And when he won't go home and he won't uh, allow David to cover up his sin, David takes a new and unimaginable course of action. He sends Uriah to the battle and instructs his general, Joab, to leave him out to die, to put him on the front lines, to give a, a signal that everybody else knows except him that says, back up and leave him there to die. And in essence, David, in order to deal with his sin and then to take Bathsheba as his wife, not only commits adultery and not only lies and not only tries to deceive and get Uriah drunk and all that stuff, but eventually commits murder. He abuses his power all the way to the taking of someone's life. Someone who, by the way, was so loyal to him that he wouldn't even go home to his wife because he wanted to serve his king. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David and exposes David and his sin. And so this psalm is about what does David do when his life has blown up, when it seems irreparable, you can't undo murder, and there's a child on the way from what I did, and so there's, there's these permanent things that can never go away. What does David do? The question, is God going to throw him away? God has made him king, and God has made promises to David about his son ruling on that throne eternally. Is God done with David because he blew it? And so David responds in this psalm, and his response is an example to us about recovering from failure, about redemption, about putting the pieces back together. And so I'm going to just pick out different verses as we go through it because David, as poetry often does, kind of repeats himself through themes. And the theme shows up again and again and again. So the first thing we're going to look at, I want to look at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. And we're going to see what David thinks about what he did. So follow along with me, verse 1. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, and you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged. All right, so step one. First thing David does is David owns his guilt. David says, I did it. It was awful, and it was wrong, and I see it, and I'm broken over it. He doesn't pass the, blo- the buck to someone else. He doesn't try to explain it away. He just simply owns up to it. He acknowledges his guilt. No excuses. He just says, I chose to do this, and it was terrible. The severity of what I did is unimaginable. He's just simply honest about what he did and even why he did it. I did it because I chose to do it. It is my guilt. I'm going to say this to you. If you want the pieces of your life to go back together, I would say it starts by being brutally honest. You have got to own what you have done. It may not feel good. I'm sure it did not feel good for David to be exposed like this. But David had already tried what many of us are doing. David tried to cover up. 
And I will tell you, while initially that may feel like a really good thing, over time that gets to be a really heavy weight. Constantly covering up what you have done. Worried if somebody knows some new bit of information. Worried if someone has discovered something more. Worried if if it's going to come out. David has already tried that and it's been exposed. I will tell you, there is no hope for you in your life being redeemed and healed and made new and made whole in covering it up. We use a lot of different words, ideas for that. You know, I'm just going to leave it behind. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm just going to have a fresh start. I'm going to just live with a short memory. And all of that is well and good. But if you didn't start by owning it, you can't really let it go. Because owning it is actually the pathway to freedom from it. You can't address the fallout of what you've done until you own what you've done. When you sit there and say, well, I did this because of this, and I did this because of that, and it wasn't my fault because of this other thing, and you can't really blame me because of whatever. What you do is you make yourself a victim of everyone else. Problem with that is you can't change anybody else. So while it may feel better because you don't get blamed, you're also stuck. You have no say over whether your life changes or not if you're always at the whim and the mercy of everybody else. What you like to do is pass the blame, but the reality is the, the nature of your life is about your response, your choice to what happens to you. And so you can't address the fallout of your guilt until you own it. If you're someone who's still wasting time living in regret, you just feel like if I beat myself up enough that eventually that will make it all right, I'm telling you, there's no hope down that road. If you're someone who's living in, in the, the blame game, trying to find who's at fault and why it's not yours and, and bitterness is just springing out of you, you're not going anywhere. But once the matter is settled about who owns this issue, you have an open door to move forward to something different. And so David says, I'm guilty. I am guilty. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I have sinned against you. I have done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict. David just pours out honesty and truthfulness. Now, when we talk about putting the pieces back together, we're not talking about being exempted from the fallout of what I've done. David says, have mercy on me. The word mercy, do you know what the word mercy means? Mercy is the idea that I have done something that is wrong, that is is punishment worthy. Mercy says that even though I deserve punishment, punishment is set aside. It is not receiving the bad that I have earned. That is mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is receiving something good that I didn't earn. You know, mercy is getting out of punishment. Grace is falling into blessing that I didn't earn. So mercy, when David says mercy, what he's saying is, I know there's fallout to this. And God, I would ask you just to be merciful to me in it. And by asking for that, he's admitting that he doesn't deserve what he's asking for. And so get honest about your failure. Don't come to to be honest about it in the expectation that it will make everything exactly how you think it should be. And when you start getting honest, this is one of the reasons we don't like to, when you start to get honest, it may seem like you'll never escape it. David says, my sin is always before me. 
Once you start being honest about how you've blown it, you might see you're blowing it everywhere. It's kind of like when you buy a certain car and then all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. Once you turn on the radar to it, God will be starting to dig through. It can get discouraging. It can get defeating. It can get deflating. Like, man, there's just, I just blow it everywhere. And we'll talk about that, where you go with that. But the reality is you're not helping yourself by trying to pretend that that's not true and that's not real. The reality for every single one of us is that we are human beings. And when I sin, it reflects both my humanness, my humanity, my, my weakness, my inability to be perfect, and it reflects my belief system. The Bible says that faith produces works. What you do reflects what you believe. Some way, shape, or form, it reflects what you believe. It reflects what you think is valuable, what you think is to your advantage, what you think worthwhile for spending your life and your day, what's going to help you, what's going to be good for you. What you do, what you say, the attitudes you hold in your heart, the outlook and the viewpoint you hold reflects your belief. And so when we think about owning up, we stop here a lot. I blew it. I'm responsible. The damage is great and my soul is a mess. I deserve to pay. And by rights, God should be mad about, about that and be mad at me. And that's where we end it. That's when we consider confessing, when we consider being honest, that's where we go. Well, then I'm just going to feel terrible about myself. Well, yeah, you might, but that's not the end of the story. And that's not the end of this psalm. And before I get to the, to the other two themes I want to show in this psalm, I want to share this with you. Confession or, or getting, getting honest about your guilt is just the first step. And here's what you have to know in order for you to have hope in your confession. And it's great news. It's awesome news. It's amazing news. Here's this. You are not what you have done. Your identity is not defined by what you have done. What I have done is not who I am. I'm just going to say that out and then we're going to talk about it for a second, okay? You are not the sum total of your actions. Not in eternity, not in God's sight. You are not the sum total of your actions. Your worth is not defined by what you have done. It is not measured by your performance. That's hard for us to kind of get because it feels like what I've done is a reflection of who I am and so it speaks very loudly We all default to that idea that what I've done, we default to it with ourselves and with others, that my value is about my performance, but it simply isn't true. Let me prove it to you very quickly. Um, When when a, a newborn baby is born, would you say that that baby is infinitely precious? Anybody walk in the hospital and go, well, what have they done? Babies, they survived birth. Great. Good job. Everybody does it. Like... When you have a newborn baby, are they infinitely precious? And they've done exactly what? Their performance is zero. Right? Your worth is given to you by your creator. It is not defined by what you have done. It is given to you by birth. And if you're a believer, your worth has been given to you by new birth. Right? You are a child of God. What you have done, does anybody here believe that what you have done made you a child of God? So your worth comes from something that had no connection to your performance. If we were looking at your performance, you would never be a child of God, right? So we know, like theologically, we get this. Would you ever say, somebody says, I I want to come to be a Christian. I want to come to know Christ. You're like, well, you better clean your life up because 
you know, children of God don't act like that. Is that what you would say to them? Of course not. You would say to them, well, you are a mess and I'm a mess. We're all a mess. The only hope we have is that God provided sacrifice for us in Jesus Christ. So put your life in his hands. He'll clean you up, right? So our worth is not our performance and we get that wrong. And sometimes when we hesitate to get honest, it's because we think it will make us worthless because of what we've done. But your worth never came from what you did. Your worth came from the one who gave you worth, created us with meaning and with purpose. And he did all of that without your help. So maybe today you have something you need to get honest about, you need to confess, something you need to own up to. I would say start with God. Uh, By the way, do you think he doesn't already know? Sometimes we play this game like we can hide from God. You know, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden, hide and seek. Well, I guess who's going to win that game of hide and seek, you know? God already knows exactly where you are. He already knows how many hairs are on your head. Do you think he doesn't know what tree you're hiding behind? Will God be shocked by what you've done? I read a quote yesterday. It was a a tweet by uh, Rick Warren. It said this, admitting your mistakes doesn't make you weak. It makes you credible. I think too often as believers and as the church of Jesus Christ, we've presented ourselves as flawless, as upright, as standing, you know, in in a higher ground. And it makes us ridiculous. Because then what do people do? They shoot at all of our faults. Admitting your mistakes just makes you credible. Everybody already knows you're, you're a mess. It just says you're being honest. But maybe admitting your mistakes to God is not enough. Maybe it goes beyond that for you. And I would say, own up to the other people involved. For once, get down to the truth with them. Stop running from them. Stop leaving relationships behind. Go to someone and say, I've blown it and I need to make it right with you and I don't exactly know how, but I need to start by saying, yes, I did that and it was awful. Not necessarily for public broadcast, tell all the truth to all the people. That's not really appropriate, but there are probably appropriate people for you to go and be honest with. And so today, will you follow David in admitting your guilt, laying aside excuses and rationalizing? Now, that's not the whole story. So we're going to look at a couple other verses because David asks God to do something about his sin. He doesn't just ask for mercy. He asks for something more. And he asks for something, and this is, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is David after that whole episode where he was an adulterer and a murderer, abusing his power as the king, David says this, so verse 2, verse 7, and verse 9. Here's what he says in verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Hmm. So I got great news for you today. If you'll get honest about your sin... There is a remedy for it. We don't just sit in our sin. It is step one to be honest about it. But then step two is by faith to take hold of this truth that God washes sin away. Powerfully, miraculously, spiritually, and completely, you can be made clean from the inside out for the worst possible mistakes that any person's ever committed. You think yours are bad? I could tell you five people in this church who probably have something worse off than you. We could go around comparing stories. The reality is, it's not the measure of your sin, it's the measure of our God's grace. And God says He will wash us clean. And so as David cries out under inspiration for God to do this, I would ask you, what do these words mean to you? What pictures do you think David is trying to bring up in our minds when he says, 
wash, cleanse, clean, whiter than snow, blot out. As he uses those words, what's he saying? What's he saying for us to think in our heads? Is he talking about that stain on the shirt that'll never go away? Or is he talking about that our sins, although we can't make them go away, can be completely removed? By the way, how good of a washer is God? It's like, oops, I missed a spot. Is that God? See, one of those car wash places that you drive away and you're like, man, I can't believe they took my money and did this. Is God somebody who doesn't know what he's doing when he cleans? Or is God someone who, when he cleans, he cleans completely and entirely and perfectly? That he washes sin away. Uh, David says twice in there, all. He says in verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. And verse 9, blot out all my iniquity. David talks about it being completely gone. Not just rinsed off, not just casually washed out, but washed away, whiter than snow. I mean, I know our picture of snow here gets diluted over time because of, you know, salt and dirt and, and all that kind of stuff gets on. But when snow comes down, it hurts your eyes in the sun, doesn't it? It's so blindingly white. And that picture is the picture that he says, though your life is a mess, God can make it whiter than snow. God says the same thing to his people in Isaiah 1. Though your sins are scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that if you take your failures and your mistakes and your sin and the, 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 the mess that you've made of your life and give it to God, that he can do that? Has he done it for you? Has he washed your sin away? When you put your faith in Jesus, we call it forgiveness. It is more than letting someone off the hook. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're fine. Forgiveness, biblically, is God literally removing our sin from us. I don't know how he does it, but I know that's what he says he does. He says he took our sin and he put it on Christ. And Christ paid for our sin. He became sin who knew no sin so that he could take the righteousness and put it on us because we weren't righteous at all. But now we are made righteous in Jesus Christ. Whiter than snow. Our stain is gone. The record is completely erased. There is no trace at all. Believer, I'm asking you, when you fail as a believer, are you forever scarred by your failure or have God's forgiving and saving powers done a work in you? Is his tank of power empty and he just can't do it anymore? He could only do it when you came to him for salvation, but then later on when you blew it, oh, too bad, I gave you a shot, but you blew it. Is that how our God works? Or is our God a God who is faithful and true because of his love, because of his son, because of his name, not because of ours? Maybe that's what you need today, to believe that this is what God does. When we come to Him, we will find that our sins are gone and erased, that we have been washed as white as snow. Maybe today you sit there and you don't feel as white as snow. Let me just ask you, who's done your washing? Was it you? If your washing was done by you, you're not as white as snow. But if it was God, what do you believe about that? Did God come up short? How does he clean? Does he clean partly 
or fully? Does he clean temporarily or permanently? Does he clean just the surface or does he clean all the way down to the very depths of your soul? You have a choice of faith here. What do you believe? Now, part of the problem from our choice of faith is when God cleans us, he doesn't erase all the consequences. And so we have like what we see versus what we're told. And what we see, you know, it looks like this stuff is not going to go away. They stand as witnesses against us, forever being marked by what we've done, accusing us, right? And so we can look and see evidence of our failure, and then we can own it again like it's still ours. Or we can live by faith and stand in what God says that what God has done is complete, that we've been made righteous and then we can live like we've been made righteous. He says we've been forgiven and washed clean and so we can live like we've been forgiven and washed clean. What do you want to live like? I mean, it's up to you. If you'd rather live in the consequences of your sin, if you'd rather live like that's the final verdict on you, that's up to you. But I can tell you that's a miserable experience, especially when God offers forgiveness. Now, before we finish today, I just want to say this. Forgiveness is not meant to be the final truth about your life. Forgiveness may make you feel like, I got off, you know, I did that stuff and he washed me clean. Okay, well, that's great. I escaped that. That's really nice. Guilt leads us, if we have faith, guilt leads us to forgiveness. But forgiveness leads us somewhere even better. Because David says in this psalm, not just washed clean, but he says restored. That God restores us. That I blew it, but God literally puts the pieces back together. And so as, Dave, as I read this, uh, verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, read, remember the context, remember what David has done. And David asks for this in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Joy and gladness. If you've ever owned up to your failure, if you've ever lived in the fallout of your failure, joy and gladness is not what you feel. So there is a, as a matter of fact, if you've lived in them, what you felt like is, I may never be happy again. Or if I am, it will never be as full as it was before. It will always be less than. It's limited now because, because I've blown it. Because I've walked away from that relationship or that job or, or, or whatever. I've, I've blown it and it's irreparably damaged and it will never be. I've been there. I've been at places in my life where I looked at the mess that was, was me and, and my, my life and thought, we'll never be happy again. This will never be okay again. And even if we make it, it's always going to be a little bit less. Ever been there? David says, let me, let me know joy and gladness again. Let me, let me hear them. Let me be filled up with them. I don't deserve them, but God restores because our God is a redeemer. He takes all the darkness and all the death and all the disease and he transforms it through his redeeming power into something that is so different and so fulfilling and so complete. He goes how far in restoring you? All the way. Guaranteed eternally. It is guaranteed that God will completely restore everyone who is his child. Did you know that? Did you know that when our time on earth here is done and we meet the Lord, 
that God will have accomplished his complete restoration of you. It's guaranteed. The only question is timing. Will you allow God to do that work fully here on earth or are you going to wait till heaven? I don't know why you'd want to wait. I don't think God knows why you'd want to wait. Won't you do it today? Put it in God's hands because when you put your life in God's hands, when you let him be Lord of your life, it will always set you up for restoration. God will begin to restore you from the inside out. If your finances are a mess, if you've lost your job, if your relationships are a wreck, if you've neglected your soul for a long time, is it possible for God to restore? Yes, it is. It's his promise. Will you put it in his hands? Or will you keep trying to cover up? Will you keep trying to own it for yourself, hold on to it for yourself, figure it out yourself? Is God big enough? Is God great enough? Is God enough to overcome your biggest mistakes? Do you know anybody that God has taken their worst mistake and turned it into something good? I know somebody this morning in jail. And in, in interacting with them this week, here's what I heard. I hate where I am. I hate what I've done. But God has used it to restore me. Literally those words, God has used it to restore me. Are you kidding me? Who does that? How is that possible? Your biggest shame, your biggest guilt, your biggest failing, your biggest falling. Restoration. Why? Because you put it in the hands of God. Right? I know I've, I've talked to people where there has been betrayal in marriage and God has used that betrayal as deep as that pain is. And if you've never experienced that, let me just tell you, there are very few pains in this world that are deeper than that, betrayal in marriage. And I, I've talked to people who said, you know what? I hate that we went through this, but God used it to restore us. Not to just okay, but to better than we ever were before. How does that happen? There's only one way that happens. You place it in his hands. David says, restore joy and gladness. Let the bones that are crushed rejoice. Do you, you ever have bones that are crushed in your body? Do they rejoice? They do something. What's he saying? That, that crushing, that, that ultimate pain, that, that horrible pain will turn into joy. Crushed bones don't rejoice, but David says this impossibility is what he asks God to do. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of salvation. Restore, what's in this word? Make it like it never happened. Make it fade away into nothingness. Is that what God promises for you as a believer? That all of your sin and all of your failure and all your mistakes will fade away into nothing. They will be gone forever. Is that what he promises? So let's start living like that's true. Let's stop living bound up by my past and my guilt and my shame. And let's start living like God promises to restore. Today, I would invite you to make David's prayer your prayer. Create in me a pure heart. Form this in me. Grant me a willing spirit, a pure heart, one that is untainted, by what I've done. I know how you've worked and I know what you've done to wash me away, but change my heart so I can hold on to that. Give me a willing spirit so I never turn back so that the naive part of me is gone. I know the price that will be paid, but at the same time, I don't own what I've done. 
anymore because you've washed it away. And now I have a willing spirit to follow you. I invite you to make that your prayer. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You struggling with regrets today? Shame today? Stuff that you wish could be different in your life? Is God big enough? Is God big enough for you? Maybe you have too much respect for what failure can do in your life. And you live constantly in fear of failure. It drives your decisions. What are you doing? You're acting like failure is bigger than God. I would invite you to take your faith off of failure and off of your wisdom and prudence to try to avoid failure and put your faith on God who can take even failure and redeem it. Can you believe today and trust God that he can wash away the stains completely, entirely, miraculously, powerfully wash you clean and your very soul can be restored. And so while humanly speaking, it is impossible to take shattered pieces and put them back together, that our God is greater and our God is stronger, that sin has been broken, that he's conquered death and hell and the grave, and that our God is able to restore, to resurrect, to make life where there is death. Can we live like that is true? I invite you to that kind of faith, to that kind of adventure. And as we go from this place today, I invite you to live like God has cleaned you. If today God has not cleaned you, I invite you to come to him and ask him. And he promises if you call out to him, he will wash you clean and make you new through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of what you've done, but because you know you're a mess and you need help. He is a savior, a rescuer. You can do that today. But if you're a believer, I invite you to live in what God has done for you in what he says about your soul and let him restore you to the very depths of who you are. Let's close today in a word of prayer and let this be real in our lives. Let's pray. Father, these truths, they are so clear in your word and yet they are so difficult for us as believers to hold on to. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that as we go from this place, that we would give you our messes, that we would stop with the games of trying to hide what we've done or pretend that they're not that bad or pretend that they're not our fault. I pray that we would just be wide open before you, Lord, and that we would invite the work of your Spirit to cleanse, to wash, to make us whiter than snow, and that we would see your restoring hand in our lives, that we would follow you with a a faith that believes that your way is the only way. And that, Father, you would take us on that adventure to see things that we can't even imagine, that seem impossible because we know what's happened, and yet you know what you want to bring. So, Father, I I just ask you to, to reach out to your people this morning, to draw each of us into that kind of faith. And if there are any here this morning, Father, that don't have that relationship with you, I pray that right now you would touch their hearts to cry out to you. Say, Father, I don't know. I I don't know, God, about all that stuff. I just know I need you. Save me. I pray that you would come and rescue the lost in this moment. So, Father, build your kingdom. Do your work through us. Send us out from this place as people who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who are pure and holy, not because of how we perform, but because of what you have done. Let us live as testimonies to our great God, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.